You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We're pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting, let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. We are lucky enough to have a return guest. That's Jeff Seschel. He is a historian, a member, former member of the Clinton White House, uh, because President Clinton read his marvelous book, Mutual Contempt, which we discussed a few months ago on this podcast. But today we are talking about his newest book, which I also have read and really learned a lot because I was I was somewhat ignorant of this period in history and um, this particular program. The book is called Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. Thank you for inviting me again, Robert. I'm so glad to be back. Well, means Spangle didn't screw up your first one. That's why you're back. <laughs> your Whatever book, it takes. <laughs> Chris, who is a huge history buff, I would highly recommend uh, Mercury, Mercury Rising. But going into the book, I really didn't have much of a frame of reference. We had talked on a last podcast a little bit about how I had read American Moonshot by, I think, Douglas Brinkley about John F. Kennedy and, and the Apollo program. Your book kind of deals with a little bit with the same time period, but starts sooner, and that's Project Mercury, which most of us, I'm assuming, have seen the right stuff, and that's kind of our foundation of knowledge. What made you decide to tackle this particular time in history and do it with the foundation of the initial space program? Well, I grew up in the 70s. I was born actually just about a week or two after uh, Apollo 11 landed on the moon. So I missed the action. Uh, <laughs> there was, of course, still a space program when I was growing up, but the really exciting stuff had, had happened already. But it was recent history, and I grew up imbibing it, was always interested in it. And I always understood, for reasons that I didn't understand, that John Glenn was a standout figure in the history of the space race and of course as i was growing up john glenn was a united states senator so he was very much in the in the public eye and i knew that john glenn had made history by becoming the first american to orbit the earth i never really questioned that as an accomplishment 
Um, but when John Glenn passed away at the end of 2016, the age of 95, and I began to read the obituaries, I realized that there was a lot about John Glenn that I didn't know. And there was a lot more that I that I wanted to know. And one of the things that I really wanted to understand, to put it bluntly, is why that orbital flight of his in February 1962, why it was such a big deal. On the one hand, as I mentioned, he was the first American to orbit the Earth, but he wasn't the first person to orbit the Earth. By the time he went up and did that, two Russians had already done it. And he wasn't the first American in space either. He was the third American in space. Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom had gone before him. They didn't orbit the Earth, but they did get into space and come quickly back. And so I wanted to understand why the flight of John Glenn seemed, uh, along with Apollo 11, for very obvious reasons, to be the kind of seminal moment of the space race. And as I dug into it, it became clear to me that it it didn't so much have to do with the record-setting nature of, of the flight itself, but it had to do with when it happened and what it represented. And this was very much, I think, we recognize all of us today that we were in a race against the Soviet Union. So there's sort of a Cold War casting to the space race. But I think what we don't really fully appreciate today, and what I really tried to bring forward in my book, is that this was seen as an existential struggle. As John Kennedy put it when he was running for president in 1960, the nation that controls the heavens is the nation that is going to control life here on Earth. And the fear was that if the Soviets got there first, as they seemed destined to do in 1960, that we were going to be forever at their mercy. And it's in that context that we begin to understand the significance of John Glenn's flight. Going back into the Eisenhower years when Sputnik orbited the Earth and literally sent shockwaves, emotional shockwaves, geopolitical shockwaves around the world. I got the sense in reading a couple of books on Eisenhower that he, and you correct me if my memory's faulty, that he just treated it like it just Sputnik just wasn't that big a deal. Uh, like they threw some junk up there and it came back and what's, and what's all the hubbub, but he was wrong. And everyone who was worried, it seems to me was right. What is your take on the, the power and the impetus to get an American space program up and running in light of both the Soviets' achievements and Eisen, President Eisenhower's sort of, you know, what if about it? Like, okay, whatever. Well, you're absolutely right. It, it happened in spite of Eisenhower and not because of Eisenhower. Yes, Eisenhower in 1958 signed the legislation that created the space program as we now understand it, created NASA. But this was not something that he drove. This was something actually that was being driven by the Senate Majority Leader, a guy named Lyndon Johnson, (laughs) and by a whole lot of other people in Washington who were much more concerned than Eisenhower was about Sputnik and about what the Soviets were doing in space after Sputnik, which was just as dramatic or even more so. Eisenhower really didn't see it as a big deal, as as you described. And he didn't really understand why everybody else thought it was such a big deal. As he himself put it, they just put one small ball up in the air. And the United States was on the verge of doing that itself, even though, you know, we hadn't managed it yet, which was significant. And the, the, the reasons why we hadn't managed it were also significant because the U.S. space program was fragmented and it was far behind at that stage where where the Russians were. 
Uh, but Eisenhower really didn't have any interest in space. He thought it was, he just, he found the talk of sending human beings into space kind of silly, like Buck Rogers stuff, kid stuff, sci-fi. Um, and he saw no purpose in any of that at all, and really was not interested in in any aspect of exploring space, with one exception, which was reconnaissance satellites, spy satellites. His greatest concern, which is a pretty important one to have at the top of your list, was that the United States would be the victim of a surprise nuclear attack by the Soviet Union. And so the idea of taking surveillance out of the realm of the U-2 flights, which were liable to get shot down, as as happened in, in 1960, that you could move it up to space and be beyond the the, the range ostensibly of, of Soviet missiles and, and guard against a surprise attack. So that he was interested in. But scientific exploration of, of space, human exploration of space, was not interesting to him. And as far as he was concerned, it was a huge waste of money. And he resisted it strongly until there was such a hue and cry um, played up by Lyndon Johnson, among others, that he ultimately felt that he had no choice but to sign the, 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 the that act in, in 1958. Talk to us a little bit, please, about the effect of Sputnik, which to me, in in, in my lay reading, had a bigger psychological shock than Yuri Gagarin being the first human in space that, I mean, we take it for granted now as we do on a lot of things, of course, as we look back in history, but the Soviet union launching Sputnik successfully and having Sputnik, you know, right around in space, sending a few little signals absolutely sent the West into a panic. Is it fair to say? It is absolutely fair to say um, it was a panic. Um, people were terrified um, by the prospect of or the fact of a Soviet made object orbiting the earth above them. They could see it. Many people believe they could see it um, glinting in the in the heavens, passing over the city of San Francisco, passing over. Now, actually, a lot of them did see the the booster rocket stage that was tumbling around that was a lot larger than the satellite itself and so a lot of them did actually see something but the notion of it was absolutely terrifying and the soviets had crossed the frontier now four years later that was in 1957 four years later when yuri gagarin became the the first man in space americans by that point had gotten used to the idea we're still terrified by the idea, but had sort of gotten used to the idea that the Soviets could do seemingly anything in space, because it wasn't just Sputnik and then four years later, a human being. It was a whole series of firsts right in a row, immediately on the heels of Sputnik. The Soviets sent Sputnik 2, which was much larger. They sent a dog into space, which suggested that someday they would be able to send a human being. They sent a probe to the moon that went around the far side of the moon and took pictures. No human had ever seen the far side of the moon, which is always facing away from the earth. It was one spectacular first after another. And it really lent credence to what, in retrospect to us, seemed like kind of crazy ideas. It lent credence to the idea that the Soviets were going to build a, a nuclear base on the moon. That would be outside the range of U.S. defenses. It lent credence to the idea that they were going to build essentially a nuclear-tipped space station that would just sit above the United States, ready to drop missiles on the U.S. <laughs> at any provocation or with no provocation. All of this seemed possible. 
And all of this seemed likely when you had a, an apparent madman like Khrushchev at the helm. And Khrushchev loved to talk about the military implications of the Soviet dominance of space. And so the idea that we had to catch up to the Soviets, the idea that we had somehow to get ahead of the Soviets was not just a matter of prestige. It wasn't like trying to win the Olympics. This was seen, again, as an existential struggle. And if the United States couldn't compete in space, then we would not have any credible deterrent here on Earth. How much of this sort of geopolitical psyche shock, more acutely felt, obviously, by Americans, is related to the fact that just 13 or so years earlier, we had the atomic bomb and no one else did. Then we had the hydrogen bomb and no one else did. And then, especially when it comes to the hydrogen bomb, very quickly, the Soviets detonated their own. I think just like a year after, whereas the atomic bomb, I think it took them like four years, maybe. And so Americans were like, we are the ones who are the technology, you know, the technology country. We're the smartest. We have the best schools, the most innovators. Capitalism is the way to advance and come up with all these amazing technological inventions and discoveries. It's not, you know, the the death camps of communism. So, a, how much did the fact that America seemed to have lost its its technological edge, generally, and then specifically in space? And then my second question is, how much did the fact that the Soviets had a command economy help them? coordinate their effort because as you put in your book and in other books and just said a few minutes ago the american space effort was fragmented is it going to be civilian is it going to be military is it going to be the navy is it going to be the air force go ahead please there was a running joke uh in the late 50s early 1960s at a time when scientists and others were beginning to talk about building a suitcase bomb a nuclear bomb that was small enough to fit in a suitcase that the Soviets would never be able to do it because they couldn't build a good enough suitcase. (laughs) That was the level of contempt with which Americans regarded Soviet science, Soviet technology. This was a country that seemed and was backward, agriculturally, technologically, in every every sphere. Obviously, that that notion um, was dealt a big blow when the Soviets began to, to, to develop and to explode their own H-bomb, as you, as you said. Um, uh, and yet it, it really hadn't settled in until Sputnik. And suddenly the Soviet Union, the seemingly backward country of Russia, was able to do something that America hadn't managed to do yet. Anytime we tried to send something up into space, it seemed to blow up on the launch pad. And so there was a sense that the Soviets had somehow leapfrogged levels of development and we're now ahead of the United States. And it begins to turn up in in polling of the public in uh, our uh, among our Western allies, West Germans, British, French, began to see if the Soviets weren't quite ahead of the United States technologically uh, and militarily, then they were destined to be over the course uh, of the next 10 years. And so it was a huge blow to American self-confidence. It wasn't just scary in itself that the Soviets had these new capabilities, but it also began to seem that we were losing our edge. And one of the the proof points, uh, as far as John Kennedy was concerned, was that famous kitchen debate between Vice President Richard Nixon and uh, Nikita Khrushchev. And Nixon, trying to make a debater's point and, and to be gracious, said, 
Well, look, you know, both both of our countries um, have their technological advantages and advances. Yeah, for example, you, the, the, the Soviets, are ahead in the thrust of your booster rockets. We, we Americans, um, you know, we, we have color television. And this was part of a sort of a consumer uh, 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 display. And, and the idea that the Soviets were leading in these new and dangerous powers and weapons and the United States was settling into its big, beautiful, long gas guzzling cars and its color televisions with these newfangled little things called a remote control um, was seen as a, as a decline of capitalism into a kind of materialism and self-satisfaction uh, that meant that we had lost our edge and dangerously so. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Jeff Seschel. He is the author of Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. In 1960, then Senator Kennedy, uh, if not totally, but certainly partly, won the election, the presidency against Richard Nixon by campaigning on what he called the missile gap, which I would gently say didn't exist as eisenhower said it didn't exist but is the fact that kennedy convinced the american people that there was a missile gap the american voting populace did that make it easier for him to then convince the americans or reinforce their beliefs that there was a space gap and how did he exploit that to really turbocharge the American space program? Kennedy, ironically, and I say ironically because, of course, it's it's Kennedy who declared the goal that we would send an American to the moon by the end of the 1960s and bring him safely back to Earth. Kennedy wasn't all that interested in, in space, certainly not in the 1950s. When L Lyndon Johnson and others were banging on about Sputnik and what needed to be done, Kennedy really wasn't interested in that discussion. He certainly didn't help lead it. Uh, but by 1960, when he was running for president and the United States seemed to be falling farther and farther behind as the Soviets scored one after another of these firsts that we were talking about, Kennedy understood the symbolic power of space as an issue and also began to think that maybe space actually was a national security issue after all. And that maybe Lyndon Johnson and others who had been saying this might be right. And so for Kennedy, the failure of the United States to compete in space represented, as he often put it, the, the loss of, of energy, drive, creativity, vigor on the part of the Eisenhower-Nixon administration and the feeling that we needed to get the country moving again. And so space and the, and the new frontier and all of its different manifestations and meanings, uh, space became a powerful symbol. And it did reinforce, as you said, Robert, the space gap, which was real in many ways, did reinforce the notion of a missile gap, which turned out not to be. Now, I should say that there was a general sense not just on Kennedy's part, but on the part of a lot of defense analysts who didn't have access to certain intelligence and the rest, that the Soviets, that Khrushchev's boasts, that he was cranking out ICBMs like sausages. Sausages. What a great quote. It, that, that it was, that, it, that Khrushchev must be right, that the United States was falling behind. And uh, Eisenhower felt enraged, as you might expect by this, by this idea 
um, when it wasn't in fact true, but he felt hamstrung because this was based on intelligence that he couldn't just hand to the New York Times and put on the front page. So he did try to quietly reach out and did reach out to the Kennedy campaign to say, hey, look, um, stop saying this. If there's a missile gap, it runs in the other direction. Actually, we are still ahead of the Soviet Union. Kennedy was very skeptical of that. And Kennedy also, again, recognized the potency of the claim. And so he continued to make it. Let's talk a little bit about Project Mercury and its astronauts, how they were selected. It's the Mercury 7. Is that correct? Again, if you've seen the movie, The Right Stuff here in Indiana, we're particularly proud of Gus Grissom. But how were how were the astronauts selected and what were sort of the criteria to be selected? Because it appears that probably some of this criteria eliminated from consideration, maybe the most famous pilot in the United States at the time, and that's Chuck Yeager. Well, there was an interesting question that had to be answered beginning in earnest toward the end of 1958, when the program was created, to figure out what was an astronaut? What what was he supposed to do? What skills did he require? Um, They actually even had to come up with the name astronaut. Um, This was a whole new notion, um, what what a pilot means in in space, where you're not flying a plane, um, but you're doing something uh, conceivably very different or or not doing very much at all, as the case might have been, flying in in some of these capsules as they were conceived at the time. And so there was some discussion within NASA and within the space task group um, as to what the qualifications should be. And they considered a, a whole range of things. And and ultimately, where they came down uh, was to, to limit the pool. And this was very much Eisenhower's view and Eisenhower's belief to limit the pool of candidates to uh, military test pilots, um, not only because they had the obvious skills of high speed, high altitude flight. Uh, but also because they could be trusted with uh, national security information because they were already within the within the system and and there would be less concern about about leaks. Uh, and so that was the pool as it was limited. And so, of course, that uh, immediately knocked out uh, women from consideration um, that Im- immediately, uh, along with the just the general racism of of the time knocked uh, most African-Americans out of consideration. In fact, none of them were considered in the initial uh, in the initial pool. Uh, But it did leave a a substantial pool of extraordinarily skilled pilots who were then put through um, the the most rigorous and in many ways the most perverse set of tests uh, that anybody could conceive Um, because they weren't just testing their their flying abilities, which were superlative and had been well documented, but testing in many ways for qualities that might or might not be called for in space, testing their ability to endure um, really insane forms of punishment, isolation, extreme heat, extreme cold. Things have to do with with flying a capsule in space. Nobody was quite sure, but the 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 psychologists and the physiologists who were devising these tests just added more and more and more to the list. It just became a test of of superhuman abilities, and uh, from that test, you 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 get in the end the the seven, the Mercury Seven, including John Glenn. Was Glenn at the time of of Mercury's 
Mercury 7? Was he the most famous of the seven, the best known generally? His service in World War II, correct? Yeah. His service in the Korean War with uh, baseball Hall of Famer Ted Williams. Uh, was the, uh, You've answered the question. He was the person who people had heard of. He was the only one who was famous. And he was substantially famous. Um, he hadn't come to fame because of his exemplary flying in World War II and in Korea. He'd won distinguished crosses. He was a superstar. Um, uh, even if he was, uh, he, he didn't fly long enough in Korea to win ace status, he was getting there. Uh, if the war had gone on a couple more months, he would have been a flying ace, uh, which means, you know, he, five kills. Um, he, he had only three. Um, but he was he was a superstar um, and uh, he was recognized as such, but that didn't win him great fame. What won him great fame happened in 1957 when he was a test pilot and uh, the Navy had a jet called the Crusader and was in the middle of lobbying Congress for more of these uh, more of these planes. And so Glenn, who was was, uh, you know, he had been a test pilot in the cockpit for a while. Now he was behind a desk and getting restless at the Bureau of Aeronautics. He came up with an idea to prove to the nation that the Crusader was, was an incredible jet. And so he, he, he pitched to his superiors that he was going to fly a Crusader at supersonic speed across the United States and see if he could break the speed record, which was set by an Air Force pilot in an Air Force plane. And they gave him approval to do this, and he did it. He set the record. He flew from Los Angeles to, to the Navy Yard in Brooklyn in three hours and 23 minutes. And it was an enormous accomplishment. And when he, he stepped out of the plane under the tarmac in Brooklyn, they played anchors away. All the nation's press were there taking pictures of Glenn, taking pictures of his, his winsome family, his wife, Annie, and their two kids. And the next day, he was on the front page of every newspaper in the country, just an instant superstar. And his his good looks and his earnestness and his kind of all shucks demeanor, which very clearly was authentic from the get go, made him even more appealing. And he wound up being invited to be a contestant on a CBS game show that was very, very famous for a long time called Name That Tune. And uh, they paired him up with a little kid named Eddie, Eddie Hodges. And the two of them uh, won week after week. And so week after week, uh, the primetime audience uh, here in the United States watched this young, attractive Marine in his dress whites, in his dress blues the next week, uh, charming the country. And so Glenn was was a genuine star, which is not why he was picked uh, as an astronaut, but it, it, it certainly became an enormous asset once he was. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is author and historian former speechwriter for President Bill Clinton, Jeff Seschel. We are discussing his new book, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. There developed a friendship between John F. Kennedy and John Glenn. 
How do you think and describe, because you do a terrific job of describing it in the book, how do you think that came about and why do you think that came about? Kennedy admired all the astronauts. Uh, he really enjoyed, he didn't spend a ton of time with them, but he really enjoyed the time that he he spent with them. He, he as a veteran himself, as somebody who um, was very dedicated, despite his own disabilities, to the idea of physical courage and bravery, uh, he saw that in, in these seven pilots. And so he enjoyed them uh, immensely. But there was something special about, about Glenn. The whole nation saw it. They saw it from the very first press conference when the astronauts were introduced. NASA brought them out. It, the process had been secret. They all came out on this little stage that had been set up in the auditorium at, at the old NASA headquarters, which were just right across the street from the White House on Lafayette Square in the Dolly Madison House, actually. And instantly, of course, as we were discussing, the press and the nation, they already knew John Glenn. He was already famous, and there he was again. And he also um, immediately demonstrated that he had a range of skills that none of the other astronauts did. He leaned into the microphone. He told stories. He was self-effacing. He was funny. He was patriotic. He spoke very openly and without embarrassment about his faith and about his family. And immediately, you began to see articles saying, this guy's going to be president someday. And the others had never really been in front of a microphone before, most of them. They were uncomfortable. They were indifferent. Some of them were sort of annoyed, and they were very annoyed by John Glenn. And, and some of them showed it. Glenn seemed to be changing the rules of engagement here, and they weren't so sure if this is what it was going to take to succeed as an astronaut, whether they were going to succeed as an astronaut. So it was that set of qualities and uh, kind of political skill, um, uh, you know, without thinking at all of partisan politics, that, that Kennedy and and Robert Kennedy as well, JFK and RFK, both saw in John Glenn right away. And so they, they, they cultivated him and they saw him as a future Democratic politician and, and encouraged him, in fact, to run. Um, and by 1963, after and had achieved uh, even greater fame by by uh, becoming the first American to orbit the Earth, Robert Kennedy, on his brother's behalf, behalf, began to urge Glenn to run for Senate from Ohio in 1964. They actually felt that Glenn was so popular that he would help JFK hmm. uh, win the state in, in 64 when he was going to run for re-election. I was going to ask you this question later in the podcast, but since you just mentioned it, I'll ask it now. We'll digress for just a second because I want to get back to the point of the, the, the interpersonal relationships among the Mercury's. Are you surprised as a historian that Glenn never became president? He ran, I think, is it 84? 84. He was, 84, he ran in the Democratic primaries after he had served several years, obviously, as a senator from Ohio. I could see that in the early to mid 60s, this guy's got everything you could possibly want. I wonder why. Do you have any thoughts on why he just never kind of broke through? I, I do have some thoughts. And, and it's interesting because those of us, again, who grew up with John Glenn as a politician, um, never saw the, to any meaningful degree, the the charm, the humor, the kind of looseness of John Glenn in 1960, 61, 62. Um, I, I mean, I, I always admired him as a public servant. Um, and it's a serious minded guy, but, uh, 
the 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 charisma of of John Glenn the astronaut didn't always come across in, in John Glenn the politician. And it's interesting, uh, although he seemed like and was, in fact, in many ways a natural, when he did begin to run for office, it's almost as if uh, he tightened up a little bit and, and he tried to conform to a, a different model, public speaking that wasn't so compelling. And, and he he ran. So he ran for, for Senate, um, as the Kennedys had been urging him to do. He ran for Senate in, in Ohio in 1964. Um, but he never really was able to get in the race for for more than a brief period because he he actually he slipped in a hotel room he banged his head he damaged his inner ear so severely that it took him the better year to to recover he had difficulty walking and so he had to drop out of that race and then he ran again a couple times before he was elected he found that by the late 19 by the early 1970s the gloss of having been an astronaut. Uh, had gone off a little bit. It just wasn't as new. It wasn't as exciting. And he didn't have enough to fill in the gap. He was not able, uh, at least at first, to articulate for the people of Ohio why they needed to elect him as senator, what he was going to do besides be a man of integrity and a con. And, a con. and he struggled with that um, and was not a glad-handing politician. And it continued into the 1980s to to hurt him a little bit in the Democratic Party. Um, he wasn't I mean, he much admired and personally liked, but did not inspire legions of loyalists. Uh, and, and it hurt him ultimately in, in the presidential race of, of 1984. Initially, the Reagan White House had seen John Glenn as, as their toughest competitor and polls indicated that he would be. He gave them a, a scare. But as soon as he began to compete in the primaries, um, he didn't win a single one. Uh, Mondale really um, uh, dominated, and then Gary Hart rose seemingly out of nowhere to be the the real challenger to Mondale. It wasn't Glenn. You think John Glenn in '84 would have won more states than just Minnesota? I, I think that uh, ultimately Glenn would have been a, a tougher general election competitor than Mondale. It certainly couldn't be worse. I mean, I guess you could lose it all. Um, uh, <laughs> well, you've always I, got you've always got the District of Columbia. I guess you'll never get you'll never get shut out. I think that's right. Republican, I think Glenn, we Republicans we do have a chance of being actually shut out and getting nothing. <laughs> you mentioned a few minutes ago because I want to bring this back up again. You know, the Mercury Seven family was like a lot of families. There was some discontent and some backbiting and certainly a lot of competition uh, talk to us please for a few minutes about that competition how they got along with each other and was there within the group a real war to be first absolutely um unabashedly unashamedly they all wanted to be first they were all winners. They had all dominated. They had won this incredible competition over hundreds of other pilots to be selected as the Mercury 7. And then in a way, having won this competition and been announced to the nation and the world, now the real competition began to become the first man in space. They didn't know that a Soviet was going to, a Russian was going to beat them to it, although there was a lot of concern that that might happen. But the goal here was to to go down in in, in world history as being the first human being uh, to 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 enter space, and so that's a big prize. That's a really big prize. And of course, these guys all being 
uh, uh, accomplished pilots. Every one of them thought I'm better than the others. Uh, and every one of them uh, was determined to win. So it was an all out competition. And yet at the same time, they were a cohort of seven who had to train together. They had to support each other, back each other up. It was a very complicated dynamic. And Glenn from the beginning clearly seemed like the one to beat. It wasn't just that he was the most charming on camera, which he was. It wasn't just that he was the only one who could kind of stand up and, and give a speech at will. It was that Glenn was the most decorated combat veteran of all of them. Glenn, uh, as we were discussing earlier, uh, had served in World War I, served in Korea, served with distinction. He had fought more missions than, than anybody else, flown more combat missions than anybody else. And, um, you know, some of them hadn't even flown any. Some of them had uh, only been test pilots. Some of them had been in service, but hadn't uh, flown in combat. So there was a sense that 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 Glenn was was the one to beat. And when you're the one to beat, they're all looking at you and they're all aiming for you. And it, it also became clear pretty quickly that his toughest competition was going to be Alan Shepard, uh, who had not flown in combat and was sensitive about that. But he was a tough competitor, and um, he was also, like Glenn, an alpha male among alpha males. <laughs> when Yuri Gagarin became the first person in space, did he make it to orbit? He did. Okay, good. He orbited I once. I remember that correctly. So then let me ask you, why did not the first two Americans in space, which would be Alan Shepard. So he was first in some ways, Glenn first in another way. And the second, I believe, was Indiana's own Hoosier, Gus Grissom. They did not orbit. So why did Gagarin orbit and the first two Americans not? Well, there's an irony in all this, which is that the, the Soviet missile program was pretty backwards in a lot of ways. The, the push in the 1950s was to develop smaller and smaller, more efficient missiles that could carry a nuclear payload. And the United States was better at it. And we began to unload or abandon our kind of big, clunky, heavier missiles that were diff more difficult to aim and more difficult to move. And we had some really sleek missiles that, if need be, could deliver a nuclear payload to Moscow or anywhere else. The Soviets were not as successful. And so they had these big, powerful trucks of, of booster rockets. And the advantage – so when it came to fighting a nuclear war – that wouldn't have been an advantage. It was a disadvantage. As I said, they were hard to aim. They were hard to move. Uh, and um, and they required a lot more fuel and all the rest of it. But when it came to what it took to push a heavy object, a capsule with a human being into it, to push it all the way out of the atmosphere and into space, what you need is thrust. What you need is power. And the United States couldn't get there, physically, literally could not get there with the kinds of missiles that, that we had in our arsenal. In, in the 1950s. And so in a way, we had to kind of take a step backwards and build bigger, more powerful missiles with more thrust. And so the Soviets in 1961 were able to stick their capsule or, you know, uh, it wasn't didn't quite look like our capsules, but it was a capsule nonetheless, stick it atop one of these Semyorka rockets that had enormous thrust and just shove that thing, hurl that thing out of the atmosphere into space and it then you know orbited the earth once and, and he came back to earth but our our answer to that missile 
was something called the Atlas, and it was plagued by problems. This thing was just consistently blowing up on the launch pad. It was going awry. It, it was a fantastic ICBM if, again, you wanted to put a nuclear payload on it. But when you put a heavy, awkward-looking capsule that looks like a diving bell on top of it, it caused all sorts of problems. And so the Atlas couldn't be, in the terms of the time, man-rated, meaning you couldn't stick a man on top of it and feel like he was going to survive the journey for a while. So we had these these redstone rockets that were just not powerful enough to push a capsule into orbit. So immediately after Gagarin orbited the Earth, we answered by sending the Alan Shepard in, into space, but it was what was called a suborbital flight. We only had enough power to pop him up there, and then immediately he just fell back to Earth. He, From start to finish, the Shepard mission was 15 minutes, up, down. Same with Grissom, up, down, same rocket, same mission. And it wasn't until later in that year, that fall of 1961, that the Atlas was finally man-rated, although there were a lot of ongoing concerns about whether this thing was actually all that safe. As has been well-documented, the success through the decade of the American space program owed a lot to German scientists and engineers, with Werner von Braun being the, the genius among geniuses. In your view as a historian, does that does the fact that we used, if they weren't necessarily former Nazis, they were scientists who benefited from slave labor practices and various other things of the Nazi regime, does that taint it at all for you that that's the route we had to go? And we just seem to say, well, that was then and this is now. It certainly does taint it for me. I mean, I think it's it's very difficult to look at all of these um, German scientists and and to know what they did during the war um, and, um, and and to feel comfortable with the idea that they were so central uh, to the U.S. space program. I, I'm in fact, one of them who, um, uh, I believe his name is Gunter Vent, um, who ran the pad, the launch pad. And he was jokingly referred to by the astronauts and others as the pad Fuhrer. Uh, there was a lot of sort of good natured joking about the Nazis in their, in their midst, but, um, but it, it, it's a deeply uncomfortable fact. Um, and I think that, uh, and look, I, I say this as as a, a Jewish American, um, that it is difficult for me to cheer for Von Braun. Um, and I think that can be true for any American. Um, uh, you certainly don't have to be Jewish to, to feel that way about it. Um, that being said, um, I think that it it has to be acknowledged that this was the Cold War and that at the end of World War II, that all of these scientists and all of their technologies, including the V2 rocket that von Braun, von Braun had developed, they were going somewhere. And there was a race between the Soviet exactly Union right. and the United States, who gets the rockets and who gets the scientists. And, um, and so I, I think it was certainly from the perspective of our national security, um, the right call to lay claim to as many of those minds and technologies as as we could um otherwise they were all going to the other side which didn't have freedom very much in mind the soviets to your point they were searching maniacally for von braun especially they they wanted him and then 
as I recall, the United States was a little late to the race to try to get him, but eventually secured him. But your point's well taken, and and I hope that question in any way didn't make you uncomfortable. No, not at all. Not at all. It's certainly something I, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about. It's a moral quandary. It was, I think, for, for the U.S. at the time, and, and, um, and it's just something that needs to be acknowledged. John Glenn becomes the first person, the first American, excuse me, to orbit the Earth. How was he selected? What did that mean for the interpersonal relationships of the remaining four people who had yet to fly or even Shepard, who was first and wanted to be the first person to get up in orbit? And last question about this particular thing. What did what did John Glenn say about the experience? It's an interesting fact, and for Glenn, it was a vexing fact that he was not, in fact, selected to be the first American to go into space, that Alan Shepard won that prize, and that, as we've discussed, Gus Grissom went second. Uh, to make matters even worse from, from Glenn's perspective, he was picked as the backup for both of those flights. So there was a kind of further indignation in that. Now, maybe it would be worse to left to be left out of the picture altogether. Certainly the other astronauts felt so. But to Glenn, this was humiliating because, as I mentioned before, everybody thought it would be Glenn, including Glenn. And the press would endlessly speculate or not even speculate. They would just state that Glenn would, of course, be the, the first to go. And it was shocking and deeply humiliating to him that, that he wasn't selected. So why wasn't he selected? Uh, it remains, I, I wish I could say that I, I resolved the mystery and that there was a simple answer to this question, um, but there, there isn't. Um, it, it, it does seem that in the early running that it was down to Shepard and Glenn and that a lot of the men making the decision, of course, they were all men um, at the time, uh, that they all expected that Glenn would, would emerge as the first pick. But there was a lot of resentment of Glenn, not only among the other astronauts, as I described, and there was a lot more to it than, than I mentioned, but there was also some real resentment of Glenn among the NASA hierarchy, that they felt that he was in a way too famous, that he had too much power, that he could step in front of a microphone and he meant more really to the nation than, than any of them did. And in a way, um, he couldn't quite be controlled. And so there was a lot of frustration with Glenn. And the other thing, um, Glenn seeing himself very much as the leader of, of the other astronauts, when they had collective concerns about one thing or another, whether it was technological or something else, uh, for example, they just felt they were having to be put in front of the press too often, have too many press conferences. It was a waste of time. It was a distraction. Glenn was the one who then went and brought that up to their NASA superiors. And so, uh, you know, he could be a thorn in, in their side while the others kind of hung back. And, you know, Shepard was very calculating about this. Shepard was not interested in being the leader. He wanted to be the winner. And that's that's what he became. And so there is a sense, and it's hard to be sure that this is what was happening, that Glenn was was kind of being put in his place. And they said, all right, you're one of the top three, but um, but you're not going first and you're not going second. And we're not even going to guarantee that you go third. Uh, although that is what wound up happening. And then the irony, the wonderful irony from Glenn's perspective, was that by the time Glenn came up in the rotation, the United States was finally ready to move from suborbital flights to orbital flights. This was, you know, just good luck for John Glenn. It was happenstance more than anything else that by the time he came up in the rotation, the Atlas was ready uh, for, for a human being to, to be put on top of it 
or at least they hoped it was. And there is no evidence or sense that he was being saved by NASA for the first orbital flight. It really was just putting all your money on red and hitting the lottery. Uh, that's right. It, 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 as soon as Glenn was selected that fall and selected for the first orbital flight, everyone, and I mean everyone, I mean, including people in the White House and certainly in the press and in Glenn's own family, even who were so perplexed, confounded by the fact that Glenn hadn't been picked to go first. As soon as they saw that he gets the first orbital flight, they thought, oh, that's what that's <laughs> what the reasoning was. They were saving him. I found a bunch of letters in Glenn's personal files from from friends and fellow pilots and other Marine pilots who flew with him in Korea. And they said, I get it now, John, they were saving you for the big one. That's the way everybody put it, saving you for the big one. And of course, it felt sort of good to imagine that. And Glenn didn't necessarily dissuade anybody from thinking that, but it really wasn't true. It wasn't true because that flight that Glenn took was supposed to be another suborbital flight. But by that time, once a second Soviet had gone and orbited the Earth and orbited it many times more than Gagarin had. Um, it had become just too humiliating for the United States to to fly another suborbital flight. And NASA very abruptly said, we're moving to the orbital phase. And they, they rushed it. Um, and it had less to do with John Glenn than it did with a Soviet cosmonaut named German Titov, who had flown that second orbital for them. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We have a few more minutes with Jeff Seschel. He is the author of Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. In in some ways, does Alan Shepard get the last word in this competition since he got to hit a golf ball on the moon and Glenn did not? I, I think that is that is certainly a, a, a valid way of looking at it. Um, Glenn, like any of them, wanted to go to the moon. He didn't necessarily think he was going to get to the moon. He certainly hoped um, that he would get to fly in the Gemini program and that ultimately in the Apollo program. Um, but I talked about his unpopularity with his superiors. And the irony is that as soon as he had orbited the Earth, immediately uh, the press and even James Webb, who was the administrator of NASA, said, of course, John's going to be at the front of the line when we're trying to figure out who gets to put the first uh footprints on the moon. And again, that's what everybody imagined. But there were just there were a lot of detractors uh, of Glenn's at, at NASA. And his popularity, which was only growing nationally, actually hurt him uh, within NASA. Uh, Shepard played more of an inside game. And he sort of fell out of favor. And then he was back in favor. Um, the fact that ultimately the the selection of Shepard as an Apollo astronaut was made by one of his close pals from the Mercury 7, Deke Slayton, who by that point was playing a role, the role in astronaut selection, didn't hurt. But Glenn, who had consoled himself by thinking, I'm going to be too old by the time we get to the moon, I'm going to be 48, 49, probably by the time we get to the moon. Shepard was only a couple of years younger than than Glenn. Um, so Shepard, I believe, I think I'm right here, was 47 when he hit that golf ball on the moon. So uh, certainly there was a there was a great prize in it for for um, Shepard down the line. But but Glenn, by that point, had moved on and was seeking his career in the in in the public uh, in, the, in 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 public life and in politics. 
You mentioned a few minutes ago that the sheen, for lack of a better term, had had dimmed the astronaut, you know, the program that the space program was a part of everyday life now. So it just wasn't as spectacular uh, as it, in the 71 as it was in 61, per se. Did the public kind of bifurcate the astronauts? Either were, took some steps on the moon or you didn't. And those who actually got to walk on the moon were a little bit more exalted. I think that was certainly true when it came to the Apollo 11 astronauts. The sad truth of it was that uh, most Americans would have had trouble by the mid-1980s or even earlier um, naming anybody else who had walked on the moon. And none of the others who followed Armstrong and Aldrin and setting boots on the moon, none of the others ever enjoyed the sort of fame that they had. Um, most Americans have no idea who Gene Cernan is. Most of Amer- most Americans have no idea uh, you know, who, who, who Alan Bean is or, or, or Pete Conrad, uh, are. And, and, um, John Glenn, however, had achieved a kind of celebrity even before he went into space. And certainly once he, once he had that really none of them would ever touch, um, not even Neil Armstrong, who of course will go down in history. Neil Armstrong was a very shy man who didn't really spend a lot of time in front of the cameras after, uh, either before or after he walked on the moon. And so Glenn was really kind of an of his own, despite the fact that that he never got to the moon. I always thought it was an interesting coincidence, if you believe in these sorts of things, that the first initial of the of the first three men on Earth and the first three men on the moon are the same. A, A, C. That's Adam. fascinating. I didn't know that. Adam, I didn't put that together. <laughs> Adam, Abel, Kane, Armstrong, Aldrin, and then, of course, Michael Collins in the command module. That's right. Interesting. And I would have to say that, you know, your point is very well taken. It's right on the money as far as, you know, who are the other astronauts? But there's a school about 75 miles from where I'm asking these questions right up north on uh, 65 that would be able to tell you everything. Uh, Purdue University where Cernan and Armstrong and so many of the astronauts uh, went to school one way or the other. Uh, The reception John Glenn received once he came back to Earth goes down in the annals of what Charles Lindbergh received or Douglas MacArthur or or these other sorts of amazing leaders who who became American heroes. Talk to us, please, a little bit. How was Glenn received and how did that change the dynamic at all, perhaps, of the Mercury 7 astronaut family? This again Robert is one of the reasons that I wrote the book to understand why the reception to Glenn was what it was, which was overwhelming. It, 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 it's hard to describe. So you have to turn uh, in some cases to numbers. Four million people turned out in the streets of New York for the parade celebrating in the bitter cold, people climbing bridges, people hanging out of, of windows of apartment buildings and climbing out on the ledges to get a better look at the at the limousine. People weeping in the streets, police weeping in the streets at the sight of Glenn. The meaning of biggest demonstration since the end of World War II. And, and why was that? Well, it, the sense of, of inferiority and geopolitical 
uh, uncertainty and, and insecurity was not at all dispelled by Shepard's flight or by Grissom's flight. Because again, there was the sense that, yes, okay, we had finally succeeded in getting a couple of guys into space, but the Soviets were able to orbit from the first from the first shot, and we still weren't. There was the sense of playing catch up and and not quite being there. And when, if ever, would we get there? Uh, and and with Glenn, we got there. Glenn finally kind of leveled in some ways, um, leveled the playing field in space uh, to extend a metaphor where it probably shouldn't go. Um, Glenn had finally orbited the Earth. And so there, there was a, a restoration of a, a sense of, of self-confidence and sense of self-belief in the United States that we were not destined to lose this race. Uh, we were not guaranteed to win it, but we were not destined to lose, which was the way that a lot of Americans felt about it. So the sense of release, the sense of catharsis was, was unbelievable. There were mobs of tens of thousands of people climbing over each other to get a set of, of com- commemorative stamps that were issued by the U.S. Post Office that day. They had pre-printed the stuff in secrecy uh, and, you know, hoped that Glenn was going to survive this, this flight. Otherwise, um, uh, you know, all of these um, these stamps would would uh, would would be a tragic reminder of of of, of, of that loss. Uh, that was the, the sense of uh, the emotion that was unleashed unleashed by John Glenn's safe return and what it meant to the nation. We alluded to it a few minutes ago. I'll just say his name and ask why he didn't, because as portrayed, I believe, in the movie by Sam Shepard, the the myth of Charles Yeager just seems to be uh, everywhere. The movie captures it brilliantly. Uh, Yeager was first, the first person to break the sound barrier. Actually, when I was in the Army, and as a journalist, I got to interview Scott Crossfield, who was the first person to fly twice the speed of sound. Jaeger did not get selected because he did not have a college degree. Or what was the reason that he wasn't part of the Mercury program? Well, the college when he, clear, when he clearly was probably the most famous pilot in the United States, I guess, along with Jimmy Doolittle. I, don't, I think Lindbergh was still alive or maybe he wasn't, but he was. he's certainly up there. He was. And, you know, I, I don't know the specifics of the Yeager case. I do know that the the college degree was something that the NASA took seriously. They set that as a threshold. They they gave Glenn a pass on that. He he actually had left college in order to uh, right after Pearl Harbor um, to to to, uh, to enlist. Um, but subsequently, he completed uh, all of the college courses and just hadn't gotten the degree itself. And so they thought that's good enough for a pilot as good as this. Um, but I think that the, what's interesting about the Jaeger case is that it it, it brings home the, the kind of, it, you know, most test pilots um, at the time uh, looked down on on uh, NASA and looked down on the on the NASA astronauts at first. There was a sense that this wasn't real flying. They were going to be, in the phrase at the time, spam in a can. They were going to seal them in this titanium thing, and they were going to fling them out into space. They were going to tell them not to touch anything on the control panel while they were up there, and then they were going to fall back to Earth. That this wasn't flight that you could have, a, as they often said, you could have a monkey do it. And in fact, we did have monkeys do it. We had <laughs> chimpanzees do it, and they and- trained them. 
Yeah, Ham, Ham and Enos, they trained them to to flip switches and they would get a shock when they did it wrong and they would get a banana pellet when they did it right. And e- Enos orbited the earth and um, before they would let Glenn do it. And so there was a lot of joking. Now, some of it came from a place of jealousy, certainly, as soon as the test pilots saw that um, the, the fame Mm. of 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 the nasa astronauts but there was a genuine sense of of contempt that this wasn't actually this was a stunt it didn't require skill uh and uh that these were these were fine pilots who were putting their abilities to waste a last question before i ask you four brand new made up questions since you were a two-time visitor to the leaders and legends podcast would it be overstating it if I wrote a book, the thesis of which would be the most important event in the history of the United States space program was the election of John F. Kennedy in 1960. That's an interesting question. And I'm sorry, I've got a printing happening here. And I don't know if you can you hear it. No, no, no sir. Can't. Keep going. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll start over. Um, uh, okay. Let me give you, you a ask it again. Yeah, maybe that's the easiest thing. Would it be overstating it if I were to write a book, the thesis of which was the election of John F. Kennedy in 1960 is the single most important event in the history of the American space program? I want to say yes, Robert, because, of course, it was Kennedy who had to grapple with the question of whether we were going to get serious about space. It was Kennedy who made the call uh, that we were going to go all the way to the moon and set that as a goal for the space program, uh, none of which he had to do. That being said, Nixon, if he had been elected in 1960, would have faced similar pressures. Soviets still would have sent Yuri Gagarin into space, and there would have been enormous pressure on Nixon just as there was on Kennedy, to get in the game in a serious way. Would Nixon have settled on the moon as the goal? That That's not a given. That's not a given. But I think it's absolutely the case that Nixon would have felt compelled for national security reasons. And thinking again about the international standing of the United States and its, and its credibility as a world power and as a nuclear power, he would have had to commit the United States to greater goals in space. He would have had to speed up the effort, absolutely, whether he wanted to or not. So you think it would be overstating it if I said that Kennedy's election is the most important thing? I think it's true. I would agree with the statement. But as soon as we slide into the realm of the counterfactual, (laughs) I think Nixon might have done much the same thing. Because Kennedy also gave, gave words to the program. He articulated in a way that he has done, quite frankly, in, in other fields. But I'm starting even, you know, a lot of Republicans look at John F. Kennedy and the Democrats with a little bit of jealousy. Right. You know, they have their young, handsome, martyred president. Uh, I'm starting to appreciate Kennedy more because he seems like he always got the big thing right, whatever it was. And in the space program is another example of him getting the big thing right and articulating it to, you know, a country of 200 million people or however many we had at the time that this is important. And it's also important for ways that you're not necessarily thinking it is important. Is that a fair statement? I think that is a fair statement. He did get the big thing right here. He he grappled with it. He had to make a tough decision. 
there were no easy answers um, and there were no guarantees, but he identified the goal with the help of, of Lyndon Johnson, who, of course, by that time was his vice president and helping to, to lead the decision making process. They identified the goal of getting to the moon. They committed the resources to doing it. And to your point, he articulated the goal in such stirring terms that he helped to kind of bring the, the Congress and the country along with him, because not everybody was convinced. In retrospect, we think, OK, everybody must have been on board here, but they weren't. And when Kennedy in May 1961 gave the speech to the Congress, first announcing that we should send a man to the moon by the end of the decade, that, that famous line, he's reading the room and he sees that there's a lot of skepticism. And when he gets in, in the limousine to go back to the White House and he's talking to his speechwriter, Ted Sorensen, Kennedy was was dejected. He said, I don't think I sold it. I just, I, you know, I don't, I don't think they're, they're with me on this and, um, and I need them to be with me, not just to sort of pass the appropriations, mm -hmm. um, which he was pretty confident he was going to be able to do, but to stick with it for a decade. That was what Kennedy saw was that this wasn't just about getting people to sign on, say yes, and pass the, 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 the funding bill. Kennedy knew that this was, and he says this in the speech and it's extemporaneous. He's riffing off the draft and he says, if we're going to commit to this goal, we have to stay on this path because if we get on it and then we get off it, it's going to be disastrous. And so we got to be in it for the long haul. So think really hard whether you're willing to make that effort. And so I think you're absolutely right that he was playing the long game here. Uh, he knew that the the effort was going to take a lot longer than he was going to be president, even if he was reelected in, in 64. Uh, and, um, and I don't think Nixon could have done that. Even if he had come forward with the very same policy idea, that was not um, in Nixon's uh, range of, of of abilities. You should also note uh, Kennedy's beautiful speech at Rice University that he gives about the space program and probably should say and that Kennedy would have had a much easier time from the governing aspect because the House and the Senate were controlled by Democrats, by the Democratic Party. And, you know, I don't know that Richard Nixon's poster is up on anyone's wall who voted for Kennedy or Lyndon Johnson or any of the people back then. Uh, but we need to give credit where credit's due for for Kennedy's ability to to have the credibility to bring the American people along with his with his goal in this. That's Jeff right. Seschel, I'm going to ask you four questions to replace the five questions which you have already answered a few months ago. Are you ready? I'm ready. What was your first car? My first car uh, was a hand-me-down Chevy Caprice Classic 77, given to me by my mom, <laughs> uh, who had been driving it since 77. Uh, this is in the mid-80s. It was... Uh, Gigantic. It was a very long car. <laughs> um, it was silver and it had red bench vinyl seats. I'm sure they weren't leather. Second question. If you could witness any sporting event in history, which one would you choose? Gosh, any sporting event in history. Uh, that's, that's a tough one. Um, uh, I would... Um, I think I'd like to see Jackie Robinson steal home against you, Cabrera in the uh, World Series. Yeah, I will tell you, my father-in-law was was there, um, and so I, that's always made me uh, made me pretty jealous. 
one question I should have asked you about an hour ago was, did you ever get a chance to talk to John Glenn or meet him when your time in the Clinton White House? I did meet him once during my time in the Clinton White House. Uh, I met him at a gridiron dinner, you know, one of those mm -hmm. uh, annual humor dinners you know, thrown by the, the press corps for itself and for various uh, uh, highly placed people in, in Washington. And and uh, I'll tell you, when you when you work at the White House, you don't go around asking for autographs or you would embarrass yourself and you'd be doing it all day. But I did ask John Glenn uh, to sign my program at the Gridiron Dinner, and I I, I, I do still have that. Uh, so I got to shake his hand. I got to say hello to him. I wish I could say that we had some kind of meaningful conversation. Mm -hmm. We didn't. And I'm, I'm very sorry I never got that chance. Third question. What gets your vote or which movie gets your vote as the funniest of all time? Gosh, the funniest movie of all time. You May know, I just say I'm about ready to ban Animal House because that's <laughs> been the choice of everyone from the governor, current governor of Indiana to Mitch Daniels, the previous, <laughs> a previous governor of Indiana. All right. Well, I'll knock that one off the list. Um, <laughs> no, that's a funny movie, but that that wouldn't have been my pick. What would be my pick? Um, uh, it's, it's tough to reach back. I, I have to tell you that this is not a comedy, um, but there's so much humor in it. And um, and it is um, it, it is uh, certainly near the top of my list of my favorite movies. I, I think Singing in the Rain is is full, is full of wonderful humor, um, even if it's not a, a proper comedy. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone who's ever lived in Indiana, except for Abraham Lincoln, whom would you choose? There's no sense in me asking the question because everyone's going to say Lincoln. So that's why I just assume he's going to be your first choice. Well, <laughs> well, of course he would be. Um, uh, and while there is a long distance between um, uh, between Lincoln and, and Gus Grissom, I, I think uh, someone we've talked about a couple times today, um, Gus was a quiet guy. I don't know that he'd be a great conversationalist over dinner. Um, but if you could get him going, um, I think he would have a lot of a lot of stories to tell. Um, and I would uh, I, I would have loved to have that opportunity. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC. The Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Jeff Seschel. He's kind enough to make his second appearance on the Leaders and Legends podcast. We discussed his new book, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. I can say, Jeff, I've read two of your books. They both get five stars, amazing reading, terrifically phrased. You can obviously tell that, that uh, Jeff has uh, mastered the use of the written word. And we thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Robert. I'm so glad to be back. And I got to go write another book so I can come back again. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, 
please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.